Today I'll be reading Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had become betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had gave birth to their son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie. Hey, I need to tell you, we've been uh, this last month talking about how to miss Christmas. And it's because we can be really close to something and still miss it entirely. There was a gentleman who lived in Boston, and he had never seen Niagara Falls. And so he decided he was going to go to Niagara Falls. He didn't really have a way there, so he just started walking. He walked 700 miles to see Niagara Falls. When he got to the city of Niagara Falls, he was within about seven or eight miles of the falls, and he began to hear this this noise that he could only imagine was the noise from the falls itself. And so he pulled somebody that he found uh, walking on the road and he said, is that what I'm hearing? Am I hearing Niagara Falls? And the person that he uh, intercepted said, well, uh, I'm not really sure. And he said, well, are you not from here? He said, absolutely, yeah, I've lived here my whole life. I've just never been to the falls. How is that possible, right? You can be so close to something but never see it. And that's where we are in our text. We can do this with Christmas. We can be right in the middle of it, so close that there's no excuse for not seeing it, but we can still miss it entirely. And that's where we are in Matthew 1 and 2. I need to spend a little time in Matthew chapter 2, and then we'll go to our text that was read uh, just a second ago. But in Matthew chapter 2, we talked about a couple weeks ago that magi come from the east, wise men come, they follow a star, and it leads them to Jerusalem, and they roll in, and they, they say, where is the new king of the Jews? And Herod, the current king of the Jews, gets word, and he's disturbed about that. So he pulls in his religious leaders, and he says, uh, you who are theologically trained in these things, tell me what's going on, because these people are telling me that there's a new, the Messiah is here. And the wording actually implies that Herod had to nag them a, a little about, uh, a little bit. And so um, here's, at the end of the day, we find out this, that these religious leaders, these theologically trained experts weren't ignorant. They were able to, to turn in their Bible and find the answer. They knew the truth. They knew the right answers. As religious teachers, they had even taught about these things, that the Messiah would come and that he would bring good news for the poor, that the blind would see again, that prisoners would be set free, that he, he would save Israel from its oppressors. And they, this, they actually taught these kind of things. And then when outsiders come in and say, hey, we think the Messiah is here, uh, where is he? 
then these theologically trained experts look in their books. They look in the Old Testament and they know the right answer. They point to the prophet who says, oh yeah, it's in Bethlehem, you should go there. But they didn't ever bother to go to Bethlehem themselves and see that the Messiah had indeed been born. They're right there, but they absolutely miss it. By the way, you should know that Bethlehem was only about five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. It's so close that there's no excuse, but they never go to experience it. And so for sure, somehow the thing we need to start out with is that the scribes in the story of uh, how Jesus was born, the scribes are satisfied. They're satisfied. They gave their answers. They wiped their hands of the whole thing. They say, there's nothing more to do here. We've done everything. Uh, and they stay planted in the halls of academia and uh, they miss Christmas entirely. They miss the Messiah. And we have to ask why. Why is that the case? How can somebody live in Niagara Falls and never see the falls? How is that possible? Well, I wanna throw out one word that probably is a good explanation for why the scribes acted the way they did. The word is fear, fear. Herod was a king that was overall pretty well liked. He did good things for the people. But as he grew older, we talked about a couple weeks ago, he grew into a very suspicious and murderous old man. And when we have uh, Matthew chapter one and two, we're at the time of Herod's life that is very near the end. And so by this time, he had already killed his wife. He had killed his mother. He had killed three of his sons and he had forcibly removed all of his political opponents, okay? And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who might be in that kind of administration. When a leader starts killing people around him, what does that leave around him? It leads, leaves people who will never question, who will never challenge out of fear of what will happen if they do so. And so these guys are prominent leaders, uh, but their fear is what moves them to act. They become yes men because they don't want to cross Herod. That's the last thing they want to do. And in this kind of an environment, he comes to them and he says, he says, give me answers about this new king that I'm hearing about. And you can understand why they would hesitate. Uh, just to acknowledge this new king, let alone worship him as the Messiah, would threaten the current king, who, by the way, regularly uses murder as a motivator. Uh, so put yourself in their shoes. What would you do? And it's probably true that they knew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that maybe there was something up about the Messiah, but they did not act in any way. We could say it this way, to the scribes, Herod was bigger than Jesus. People are big to the scribes, and God is small. And we don't have to push our imagination too far to put ourselves in those kind of shoes. We all have a Herod of some kind in some corner of our heart, and that Herod influence is greater than the influence of Jesus, who is the Messiah and the true King. And we are, we are afraid. Fear becomes one of the most common reasons that we sin. 
We're afraid somebody will reject us. We crave somebody's approval. We need somebody's acceptance. And so we do things to win those kind of things, and we end up being controlled by the people who we want to be loving of us, right? We do things to keep from incurring their wrath. And there's a biblical term for this kind of situation where we act according, uh, based on what people think, and it's called the fear of man, the fear of man. In Proverbs chapter 29, the, the writer says this, the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Um, Ed Welch wrote a book, and he gets at the heart of this right in the title of the book. The title of the book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. Those are the kind of lines that we're using today. And he writes about the symptoms of the fear of man. In other words, you can, you can tell if you are susceptible to the fear of man by these kind of things. If you are susceptible to peer pressure, if you are always needing something from your spouse and looking to your spouse to be a savior that they were never intended to be, if you're concerned with your self-esteem, you need other people to fill you up all the time, if you're overcommitted because you can't say no, if you have a fear of being exposed as a fraud, if you speak small lies, um, to make yourself look good, to make yourself look right, if you are driven to uh, jealousy or anger or depression or anxiety because of other people in your life, if you avoid people that you don't want to face because of some issue, if you compare yourself with other people, and if you have a fear of talking about Jesus with other people, a fear of evangelism, then maybe the fear of man is what's happening in your life. Now, if I've included you in the fear of man pool, I want you to say yes. Yes. There were some people who didn't say anything, and I want, to know, I want you to understand why you didn't say anything. is because you're afraid of people around you. So you are also in the fear of man pool. That's how that works, okay? So we all, we're all here. We all fear people on some level. We all have a fear of man. And what Proverbs is saying is that we are laying a trap for ourselves when people are big and God is small. And for the chief priests, Herod is big, right? And God is small. And here's the key of it. They acted accordingly. They acted accordingly. And so we have to ask, who is our Herod? I have to ask myself, who is my Herod? Who in my life makes God small? Because I have made them big. And almost without exception, there are lots of idols that we could kind of throw out and talk about. But almost without exception, there are, there are four big idols that we have as people that make Jesus small. And these things can end up being bigger than Jesus in our life. Power, approval, comfort, and control. When we're after power, we're after success or winning or influence, and we always feel burdened, and the emotion we struggle with is anger because our, our power or success isn't coming fast enough. When we're after approval, we're after affirmation, we're after the love of other people, and we feel like we can't choose for ourselves because we're always at their whim, we always got to cave to other people, and the emotion we struggle with is cowardice. What will people think if I... Uh, if we're after comfort, which is a lack of stress or privacy or freedom to do whatever I want in my life. We feel that we're never productive. 
productive enough to bring the comfort that we're after. And we usually uh, struggle with boredom. And then if we're after control, it means that we have put standards and boundaries around our life. We put self-discipline in our life because we want certainty, because we feel lonely. Um, and other people won't join us in those boundaries. And we most often struggle with worry if we're after control. And those kind of things are Herod's in our life, right? They determine how we live because they are big enough to do so. And we could say it like, like this. All of those idols are spiritual bullies who are trying to poke us into the chest and, and take our milk money or um, squash the leftover tots we put in our pocket so that nobody gets to eat them, right? That, that's the way that goes. They're doing it because we've allowed them to be big enough to do it. People are big and God is small. And that's what it means to be trapped in the fear of man. And in our text today, we get the answer to the fear of man. It starts in verse 18. We see it in Joseph. Joseph is a guy who is betrothed to a woman named Mary, a girl, I should say, named Mary. And in the first century, there were three stages of marriage. There was an engagement, there was a betrothal period, and then the actual marriage. The engagement portion was a, con a contract that was arranged largely by family. They would get together and say, uh, I think our kids are a match. And so they would, uh, they would determine, they would get to know each other. They would determine whether they were suitable for each other. That was the engagement, okay? The betrothal is the second step, and it was the actual pledge of marriage. It was a public announcement of the engagement, and then, and that lasted a year, and then the final step in the marriage was an official wedding that took place at the end of the year of betrothal. But the thing we need to understand is Mary and Joseph are betrothed at this point, and that's the middle year that they're spending together, and at this point, they are married. Um, each belongs to the other, but during this year, they don't have full marriage rights. That's just how it worked. They lived separately. The intent was to delay the sexual element so that they could form a relational, uh, a, a relationship that was based on friendship and serving. And that time lasted one year. There was actually a phrase in Jewish law uh, used of a young woman whose fiance dies while they are in this year of betrothal. And the phrase that is used of a, a a uh, woman who is in that boat is, she is a virgin who is a widow. Not a lot of people fall into that boat, right? But by law, during the betrothal, the two people are bound and the only way out is by official divorce. And that's where Joseph and Mary are. And so Joe, in this betrothal period, finds out that Mary is pregnant. And Matthew tells us, we know as the reader, but it's not clear to Joseph. Uh, he doesn't know about the Holy Spirit and God's plans, and he's a good guy. And he just thinks, my wife has been unfaithful to me, and he wants to avoid a whole fiasco, but he is within his rights to expect that his wife would be faithful to him, right? Which in his mind is not the case. And also add to that this, that 
both Roman and Jewish law require Joseph to divorce Mary if she has been unfaithful. It was a totally different day, and the moral code of that day said that to continue to live with an unfaithful wife treats her as a prostitute, and it brings shame. And Joseph wanted to avoid that. So make no mistake, Joseph, by law, is required to do what he's planning on doing if Mary had been unfaithful. And the goodness and the mercy in Joseph, the righteous part of Joseph, comes out in the way that he's going to satisfy the law. He says to himself, I won't make a public thing of this. There won't be an open trial so that people will know who snuck where and did what. So what I'll do is I'll just divorce her, I'll satisfy the law, but I'll do it quietly. And here's what he knows. He knows that this will make for a better life. Nobody wants to be uh, cheated on, right? But he knows that this will at least get him back on track. And so he sees his path and his circumstance. He sees the people around him. He sees the law and they're all big, right? And God is small. And then suddenly something happens. Verse 20, an angel shows up in a dream and he says, Joseph, son of David. Now that sounds to me like a full name. Have you ever had your mama use your full name? Yes. Uh, just yesterday for me. So thank you. You're welcome. Uh, but he says, Joseph, son of David, which is not only his full name, but it also points to his royal pedigree. He really was a son of David. He was the heir to the throne. David was his great, 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 great grandfather. And something is up when you use a title like that for Joseph. He knows. And so the angel says, Joe, I want you to hang up the phone. There's no reason to call a lawyer. And the angel gives him a bigger picture of God. He says, Mary has done nothing wrong. God is at work here. And you'll take Mary as your wife. And then in verse 21, the angel does probably the greatest gender reveal in history and says, you will have a son, and this baby is not just any baby, this baby is God's son, and I want you to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And all of this has been planned from the prophets of long ago. So Joseph, you can go study and you can go see for yourself. And verse 24 says, when he woke up, he took Mary as his wife, Instead of divorce, he knew her not. It means that he kept her pure, not just through the betrothal, that was expected to do, right? Because everybody was separate until the marriage, but even until the birth, after they were married, until she, Jesus was born, so that nobody could dispute that this baby was the son of God. And so watch what happens to Mary. She won't be a virgin who is a widow. She'll be a virgin who is a mother. Never happened in history. And when he was born, they called him Jesus. And so overnight, there's a shift in Joseph. In the, jo in, in the dream, we could say Joseph got woke, <laughs> right? He woke up and he stayed, he stayed woke. He didn't carry out his plans, but he absolutely changed them. And suddenly, he looked around at his circumstances and his reputation and the law and what people might say, and he wasn't afraid of those things anymore. He had plenty of reason to be, plenty of reason to fear man, but he didn't any longer. Why? Why didn't he fear? Well, the scribes were satisfied, but what we see in the text is that Joseph was surrendered. Joseph was surrendered. 
And we have to ask, what, what caused the wokeness? Why did Joseph suddenly change course? And the answer is that now Joseph had something bigger to fear than man, and it was God himself. And so we could say it this way, to Joseph, God is big and people are small. And there it is. That's the answer to the fear of man. The answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. If you're being controlled by your thirst for power or your need for approval or comfort or control, which those things always flow out of and and go back to being under the thumb of people and their expectations, always the fear of man, that's what it flows back to, then the solution is a bigger view of God. There's a story that I like to tell often, and I think I used it a few weeks ago about Odysseus, and uh, he's, he has to sail around the island of the sirens. And the sirens, of course, are um, attractive women that sing a song that's so beautiful that when ships, uh, when sailors hear it, they steer their ships into the rocks and they all die, right? And Odysseus's plan to get around the sirens was to put wax in the ears of all of his sailors and he would tie himself to a mast and they couldn't hear, but he could still hear the song and they would sail around and that worked. Well, there's another story in Greek mythology about Jason and the Argonauts and they had to sail around the same island with the, with the sirens, but their strategy was a little different. Their strategy was that they went out and they get a guy named Orpheus. And Orpheus is the best musician and poet in, on the planet. It was said of Orpheus that his music could make the trees dance. And so they get Orpheus and they put him on the boat. And when they sail past the island of the sirens and the sirens fire up their song, they turn to Orpheus and they say, play. And Orpheus fires up his song. And his song is so beautiful that the siren song is forgotten. The sailors can only pay attention to the song that is the better song. And they avoid the rocks and they live. Do you know what the key to overcoming sin in your life is? Here it is. Listen to the better song. That's it. Listen to the better song. Fear the God who wants to lead you always into more and more life and love than anything else can. And when we fear God, we seem to forget about fearing man. Oswald Chambers said this, the remarkable thing about the fear of God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And so the question, just for a few minutes, how do we begin to fear God today? Psalm 34 says this, oh, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And that helps us a little bit. First, what the fear of the Lord is. Number one, it's utter awe. It's to be overwhelmed intellectually and emotionally and spiritually and physically by the holiness and the power and the purity and the righteousness and the justice and the greatness and the glory of God. The Bible says this, that no man can stand in God's presence and live. And this is why, because his awesomeness is too overwhelming. That's part of what the fear of God is. Second, it's reverence. 
It's to see this awesomeness and then to fall on our face in adoration, in worship. Anytime somebody comes face to face with God in scripture, that's what happens. They fall in adoration and worship. Then it's also this fear of God thing is a fear that doesn't want to dishonor or displease or disappoint. We could say it this way. It doesn't want to break the relationship. And so it does everything it can not to break the relationship. It's a fear that is also secure in love. It's secure in love. If you have a new bride, that new bride might talk about being afraid of the first meal that she cooks for her new husband. She might say, oh, I'm afraid it's not gonna go well. I'm, I'm afraid that it's not gonna be done on time. It's not, I'm afraid that he's not gonna like it. I'm, not, I'm afraid that I'm not, not gonna put it together right, but she doesn't mean, when she says all those things, she doesn't mean that she's afraid that her husband's going to kick her out of the house. That's not it. Her fear is not fright. Her fear is a desire to serve the one that she has committed everything to. Her holy fear is a desire to please, and that's what it should be with us and God. And finally, fear is not fright. Fear is not fright. Fear is to stand in awe of God. To be afraid of God is to run away from him. And the fear of God is to experience him and know him so well and experience his love so much that we are not afraid of him. And that seems like a paradox, but it's absolutely true. John John writes it this way, perfect love casts out fear. And it's not a truth, it's an experience. When we experience that kind of love, we can be afraid of God and yet not frightened of God. And the fear of God, good news, can be learned. A lot of texts tell us this. Uh, The fear of God comes from God. So the first step in the fear of God is actually to ask God to teach us, to fear him. And then the tool that he's going to give us is this. Think and meditate on God by preaching to your own heart. And this is what we find in the Psalms all the time. It's what the psalmists do over and over and over. It's why the Psalms are such a valuable tool for us as we follow Jesus. Um, Look at David in Psalm chapter 37. Here's just a little taste of what he does over and over. He says to his own heart, he's he's preaching to himself, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way or over the man who carries out evil devices. Do you know what that means? What's he doing? He's saying, hey, heart, I need you to remember that God is bigger. Remember that you don't need the approval of all those successful people out there, and you don't need to feel superior to all those people out there who are failing. God gives you all the love that you need. Wait for him and let him satisfy you with all the love that you're, that you're after. And he's giving his heart a reminder that God is always bigger and God is always better. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, have you realized that most, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Don't follow your heart. <laughs> That's probably some of the worst advice that we give as a culture. Oh, just follow your heart. No, no. Don't do that. Instead, talk to your heart. Tell your heart the truth. And when we talk to our hearts, we get a bigger glimpse of God and the fear of man 
is replaced by trust in God. I'm gonna call the band up, and while they um, get in place, I want to point you in the text to a small baby who has come into the world. And this small baby, the angel says, already has a name. His name teaches us that God is always bigger and God is always better. One of the interesting things to me is that in this text, Joseph and Mary, father and mother, don't get to name their own child. They don't get to name their own son. He comes pre-installed with a name. We could say it that way. And his name is Jesus. And here's why. Because the minute that this tiny baby was born in the manger, he's automatically bigger than his dad. The minute this baby came on the scene, he is older than his mother. The minute Jesus shows up on earth, he's wiser than anybody else who has ever lived. Only God can name God because Jesus is the better song. And the name is Jesus. And your task over the Christmas break here over the next few days is to speak to your heart, to speak to your heart this name, Jesus. Jesus, a child who is born, a child who is Christ the Lord, and his name is Jesus. And it means that the Lord saves. Jesus has saved me from my sin. And so preach to your heart that way. The next few days as you're around the tree and everybody's getting gifts, I need you to say to your heart, heart, I need you to remember that nothing else in the world has been sent here to save me, only Jesus. Heart, I need you to remember that those people that are around me that look so big sometimes because they have expectations and demands and opinions, they can't save me. Heart, I need you to remember that living up to all of those standards that people set can't save me. I need you to remember, heart, that looking around for people who are worse off than me, that I'm better than, can't save me either. Success can't save me. Control can't save me. The affirmation of someone I love can't save me. A stress-free life cannot save me. Only Jesus, Jesus. He's the one who has come to save from sin. He's the bigger and better song in my life. And so heart, fear him. For all the life that you're looking for, all those other places, it will come if you fear him. God is big, he saves. People are small, they can't save. And so heart, I need you to need people less, but I need you to love people more because Jesus is the one who saves. Talk to your heart that way and you will never, never miss Christmas. Father, we thank you that you give us tools to give, you, give our, our hearts a bigger picture of who you are. We don't have the luxury, most of us, <laughs> of having angels show up in our dreams. But we do have the very words that are yours, that we can point to, and we can steer our hearts to, and we can end up with a bigger picture of who you are and what you've done. Let that be what we focus on. Let us steer our hearts back to a God who is always the better song. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.
We're gonna worship with a couple of songs and I want you to stand and I want you to speak to your heart through the lyrics in these songs as we conclude our service today, okay?